So Money, Episode 73, Kabir Segal. You're listening to So Money with award-winning money guru, Farnoosh Torabi. Each day, get a 30-minute dose of financial inspiration from the world's top business minds, authors, influencers, and from Farnoosh herself. Looking for ways to save on gas or double your double coupons? Sorry, you're in the wrong place. Seeking profound ways to live a richer, happier life? Welcome to So Money. Good day to all of you. Welcome back to So Money, everyone. I'm your host, Farnish Tarabi. Thanks for joining me. Now, today's guest makes me feel pretty underaccomplished. He's a modern day Renaissance man. I just kind of made that up, and I, I actually think it's quite fitting. His name is Kabir Segel. Now, I was introduced to Kabir by a mutual friend who thought, you know, he'd be a perfect fit for the show because. He actually just wrote a book about the history and biology of money and me being quite the nerd when it comes to that stuff. I, I, of course, would be totally into it. My listeners would be totally into it. The book, everyone, it's called Coined, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. Fantastic, fantastic book. And in that book, Kabir explores how and why money has come to play such a central role in our everyday lives. And he unveils the neuroscience behind our money behavior. He traveled for quite a few years to actually report on this topic. And and if that wasn't impressive enough, I learned that this is actually Kabir's second book. His first, called Walk in My Shoes, was a New York Times bestseller forward by President Bill Clinton. Um, Yeah. And Kabir also, in 2015, took home a Grammy. We're going to talk about that. So many amazing accomplishments. And oh, did I mention that he's only in his very early 30s? Yeah. Three takeaways from our interview with Kabir. One, the secret to his success. I wanted to know, like, what what are you doing that we are all doing differently? (laughs) What he learned from his very first entrepreneurial venture way back in kindergarten. And what it's like to work on Wall Street these days. Up until recently, Kabir actually worked in finance on Wall Street. So he's able to give us some really cool in the trenches perspective. Here is Kabir Segal. Kabir Sego, welcome to So Money. Such an honor to have you. Congratulations on your new book. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Folks, the book is called Coined, as I mentioned in the introduction, uh, The Rich Life of Money and How Its History Has Shaped Us. Kabir, you are a young man. You're 31 years old, super accomplished. Uh, we should mention that in addition to uh, you know, working on Wall Street, having this fantastic book recently published, you also won a Grammy, which we'll get to in a moment. You're making me, a 35-year-old, feel very under-accomplished right now. But uh, <laughs> just a, a testament to really, I think, going back to the book, a testament to sort of the diversity that you bring to this book, this sort of diverse mindset, which I love. Because I love when, when people write about money from uh, a, a new and fresher perspective. And I'd love for you to take us back to the aha moment that you had for this book, it's many years in the making, many countries traveled later. Where were you? What was the moment? Like, I want to know, because as a writer, you kind of have those light bulb moments and it's physically like you're somewhere, you have the idea and then the adrenaline kicks off. So where were you when this idea came to life? You know, I, I started working on Wall Street just a few months before the 2008 financial crisis. And I was just so alarmed that the, what you know, the devastation that it had caused. And I simply wanted to know a question like, what was happening in the brain when we we're dealing with money? And I remember I was 
sort of in my apartment and I was reading about just, uh, I found that the, that money activates different regions of the brain and, you know, the reward and the fear areas and the same way someone uh, is when they receive a hit of cocaine. And I was like so intrigued by, by how the brain activates the thought of money. And I started, you know, exploring this topic. I reached out to a neuroscientist at Stanford University. His name is Brian Knudsen. And we had a conversation about what happens when um, the brain is thinking about money. And from that conversation, I was like, well, maybe someone should write about this. Maybe someone should write about um, how the mind processes money and how money starts to shape our entire lives. And that was many years, that was maybe three years ago. And um, I just got obsessed with this topic of money in the mind and this started to approach money from all these different different um, aspects. Right. And I think at the time, what you were thinking about too was sort of approaching money from this behavioral financial perspective, which since then there have been several books about kind of the irrational, I've written one about the irrationality that we possess when it comes to making financial decisions. But your book takes it to like a whole new level. Uh What I love about the book, one of the things I love about the book is that um, you say very poignantly that money, no matter whether you're from America, whether you're from Senegal, whether you're from Turkey, whether you're from Russia, whether you're, you know, Jewish, whether you're whatever your culture, whatever your race, whatever your ethnicity, money, almost in every situation, in every, you know, in every culture is equal to value. And as long as that is what it represents, it will always be something that people will want, will want to have control over. Um, That's right. Why do you think that is? What? Where did that all begin? Because money is just money, right? It's just paper currency in most cases. Mm-hmm. How did it become, how did we attach such emotion to it? Well, money is really, a, I define it throughout the book, it's a symbol of value. And what is a symbol? A symbol is really something that has an emotional value. They look at, um, I looked at some developmental psychologists and they said they started to look at how symbols are formed in the brain. And so for instance, very early in life, our brain starts to wire and attach symbols with meaning. So when you see your, your mother, you don't, I mean, if you see your mother just as someone, uh, a lady with like a tall lady with brown hair, that's, that's probably, probably not developing, your brain isn't developing the right way. You should start to see her as someone who gives uh, love and attention and nurturing. She's not just a woman. She's your, she's your mother. Similarly, um, money isn't just you know a piece of paper with with George Washington on it. It's an item that has really emotional meaning. Is money is something where you give, or you, if you want to insult someone, you give someone too little of a tip. Or money is something that you, you get rewarded with if you work if you work hard. So very early in life, um, you know when we're infants almost, we start to. Um, get meaning, attach meaning symbols. And as money is probably the most important, I think, symbol, uh, or powerful symbol, um, one of the most powerful symbols in our lives, it, it, starts, it starts to intrude in all aspects of our life. And we start to define the symbol in many different ways. It's very, it's very much a sort of a neurological aspect. You know, when they take money and they, um, they show pictures of money, people destroying money, and uh, then they scan people's brains, the part of the brain that activates is the same part of the brain that activates when you make tools. And so, you know, when people say money is a tool, well, there's actually kind of a neurological basis for it. And you can go back uh, to even sort of an evolutionary aspect that one of the first things that man made was called a hand axe. And it was, it's like a stone axe. And, 
And that's the same part of the brain. When, when you make a hand axe, that's the same part of the brain that fires when you make money. So money is sort of deeply evolutionary, and it's a symbol that we think of as a tool that we need to survive in the world. We're going to transition soon. We're going to transition soon and, and talk about what money means to you, Kabir. But before I get to that, just curious, you visited all these different countries. What was the one country that you appreciated the most in terms of how they kind of observe and value and use money? What was the more, well, I guess, you know, what was the most interesting anecdote that you could share with us? I, I think in all my travels, the most fascinating experience I had was in Japan because money is often, um, they see money as a, uh, is really a debt, a social debt. I mean, what is money? Money is, money is really a measurement of debt, I believe at least. And when I was walking through Japan, meeting my friends, I learned it was so difficult to give a Japanese person a gift. For example, I had a, some wonderful, delicious grapes and I was giving them from friends in Tokyo and they all initially rejected the grapes. And the ones that eventually accepted the grapes, they hid behind a wall so they wouldn't be seen as receiving a gift. Wow. And, yeah. And the word arigato, thank you, in Japanese translates to, quote, the burden is too difficult. So in, in Japan, it matters how you tie a knot on a wedding present. Like if you tie a knot that's too loose, you may be sending the signal that you don't think the marriage will last. Uh, Japanese department stores won't let you wrap a present because if you do so, you do a poor job, it will reflect poorly on their image. So I, I realized that sort of like gift giving is like very, very intricate and complex in Japan. And how does that relate to money? Well, gifts are really a currency. And when you give someone a gift, you're not just tying, you're not just wrapping the paper, wrapping the present with paper and ribbons. You're also tying the recipient to an obligation. So like, you're like you kind of owe me. I give you this gift. And in Japan, is a very sort of complex system of beliefs. I go into this a lot in, in, in chapter three of my book about sort of gift giving and how that shapes uh, how was that? That was sort of an initial um, force for, for the creation of money. That is really interesting. And I can see how that some of that even uh, imp, uh, trickles its way to Western culture and our culture, you know, where, yeah, if someone gives you a gift and you don't got nothing for them, mm-hmm. <laughs> you feel a little weird and awkward and you're probably going to go buy something. That, you know, <laughs> That's right. That's right. Um, I mean, like, you look at the Trojan horse, right? That was a gift <laughs> that sort of conquered a city, conquered a civilization. So gifts are very powerful. Yes, yes. All right. Kabir, I uh, would love to pick your brain now and kind of get behind the mindset of the author here. Tell us what is your greatest financial philosophy? And I'm I'm curious to know this because after traveling so far and so wide and, and getting all these different perspectives, uh, how has that maybe shaped the financial philosophy that you live with today? <clears throat> I am... Um... There's, there's something I sort of a mantra I sort of live by, which is, you know, greatness is giving us something good today or something great tomorrow. And writing a book after so many years, I mean, it, it took four years to write this book. And um, you really have to sort of defer your gratification. I really believe that the people who are, who are often very successful can, like, give up the immediate for the long term. And so it's, it's rather tried to say safe for success, but there really is something in that, that if you can sort of you know, um, do away with the immediate and, and you, you don't have to seek immediate financial rewards or even in any kind of reward and, and say, listen, I'm in it for the long run. That pays incredible dividends. Now, listen, there's there's probably some, going back to the brain, there's probably some neurological or genetic uh, reasons for why 
Uh, some people are able to do this. Some people are not able to do this. But for me, I found it incredibly helpful to be like, you know, to focus on something. Say this book, for example, I'm gonna, I'm just gonna focus on this book for four years, and now this book is, I guess, paying dividends in terms of the attention or the, or the money it could possibly make in the market. Yeah, absolutely. It's like, you know, going to school sometimes too, going and getting your degree and going for two years, four years, but you know, at the end of that. At the end of that tunnel is maybe a better job or uh, more financial security, of course, assuming you didn't take out tunnel sure. loans. <laughs> sure. That's a good one. I like that. Okay. You're in your 31 short years uh, of life. Tell us what is a financial failure that you've experienced that has <laughs> somehow shaped the way that uh, you go about uh, making decisions today? Because I think, you know, we all have failure, and but out of that sometimes breeds success. So, what was it? Maybe a failure that you experienced in your uh, in your life that was financial and that you wouldn't mind sharing. Sure, I, I um, when I started my career, I started a company in India. It was like an online social network company, and my one of my, my best friend from America and I we moved to India, built the company, it was doing well, and then we ran out of money. <clears throat> we didn't have much money to begin with, but so I took a job at an investment bank. And I actually cried on my first day because I felt like this is not... Did you cry not, on the job? At- I did. I remember vi- very vividly uh, <laughs> going, to, going to training and going to the restroom and like crying. And I was like, mm-hmm. I cannot believe that I'm sort of, you know, working at a place that I never thought I would work at. I had, you know, visions that I would be an entrepreneur and I would help build an amazing startup company, which I was doing. So I started sending my paychecks to my friend in India to bootstrap this company, bootstrap this company. And then um, we ultimately failed. We, I mean, we had a great offer. Someone wanted to partner with us and acquire us. We sort of, we should, we should have taken it. And, I, and it's one of the, my regrets today. I should have taken that offer, but, but I failed. And I said, you know, Kabir, I'm. Uh, and then I got angry at myself. I was, you know, how did I misfire? And and I just realized that, it, you know, looking back, it's good that I went that experience because now I'm smarter about. I didn't do any analysis in terms of. I didn't size the market. I didn't think about a business plan. I just went for it. Now I'm a little more, I guess, um, thoughtful about which projects I take on. I try to do some analysis before I just jump into it. How did the friendship work out? <laughs> <clears throat> Friendship's good, actually. We're actually uh, still very good friends today. And um, he he eventually started working for another startup company. And he started his own web, web consultancy. So we're actually really good friends, um, but there were some very, very trying moments and some very heated moments mm-hmm. uh, while we were going through it. I actually skipped a question before I before I talk about failure. I like to talk about memories and uh, growing up. Kabir, did you think that you had a very strong foundation in uh, financial kind of at least financial confidence? You know, I think. It's not enough. It's it's not likely that a lot of us had like literacy growing up, but I think mm-hmm. there is something to be said about kids who grow up feeling financially confident and and um, capable and to make you know some relatively basic decisions on their own as as adults because they might have had a good foundation growing up. What was childhood like for you with respect to money? I remember my, my first memory of sort of making money. I was in kindergarten and I. Uh, Every like I guess every quarter or so, the parents would come in and have a parent day, and so I grew up in Atlanta. And during the fall, there was a there's a lot of leaves like in, in autumn. There's leaves everywhere, so I collected all the rocks on the playground, and I convinced everyone that they should clear 
paths, pathways. So when the parents come, we, they could walk nicely. And so I, they, all the, these kids were clearing paths in the, in the leaves, and um, I would pay them in rocks. And it's, it's sort of the currency because I'd, <laughs> I'd gotten all the rocks. And then when the parents showed up, I charged them all a dollar to walk on the paths. So I was making a spread between a, a dollar and a rock. And once my, my mom caught wind of this, she was horrified that I was, you know, sort of, sort of doing this. And, and I, had, I remember I had to talk to the principal and I talked to them, to uh, my, my father and so forth. But I think from a very early age, I recognized the value of, of making a margin um, between your, cost, <laughs> your, your costs and, and your revenue. Did you talk about this during your interviews on Wall Street? That's a very <laughs> impressive. I, I didn't, but but maybe I should have. I, I maybe would have gotten a better offer. They would have seen. They would, I would have more of a more of a capitalist. They would have seen me as more of a capitalist. Well, as an insider on Wall Street, I think a lot of us and listeners are curious to know what is it like. Like, what's the culture like today? Uh, is it still very much uh, kind of the glamorous, uh, indulgent lifestyle that is depicted? You know in several movies, but I know things have maybe calmed down a little bit since the crisis uh, in 2009, 2010, but um, what do you think of it? Like, what's going, what, what is the behind the scenes? Take us there a little bit. Indulge us. <clears throat> well, you know, I, I've only worked um, professionally in Wall Street, so I have very little to compare it to, but if I, I mean, I compare it to like the Wolf on Wall Street, it's not that. And I also say that um, Wall Street's going through a very um, structural change. I mean, um, listen, like, you can even look at it. I mean, it's public knowledge that a lot of the compensation, the bonuses are down. People are working harder or working more and getting paid less. And even though the overall compensation is still pretty good compared to what the median person makes um, on a relative basis, people feel like, man, with all the regulation and all the all the different um, um, sort of rules coming into place, it's difficult to make uh to make to make it work, and so sort of the insider basis. If you go, if you talk to sort of the average banker, you know, on the street, it's not. This isn't exactly. There's not a lot of growth in the industry, right? It's not like how do you make this this particular organization ten times bigger? It's like no, no, no. People are talking about splitting up corporations. People are talking about um, paying, um, boosting more, uh, raising more capital. So it's not. A, it's not a very like aggressively growing company. And there's a lot of a lot of people leaving who are mm-hmm. trying to go to startups, trying to go to the asset management business, but um, it's not, it's definitely not the picture of like what Michael Lewis wrote about in the, in the, and I think in the nineties with, with Liars Poker, it's more compliance driven. Um, so it's, and I'm, listen, I'm just a, I'm just a small man on the totem pole. So yeah. um, that's, that's my perspective. Well, thanks for sharing. I, 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 you know, there was that book called Young, I think it's called Young Wall Street or, uh, Young, I forget what it was called, but Young Money, Young right? Money, right? Young Money, and now it's being turned into a TV series on Fox, oh. I think. Oh. Just sort of about how the culture of indulgence and exuberance is still well and alive, and particularly uh, with the younger set uh, of Wall Streeters, and it's sort of like you know nothing's changed, and um, mm-hmm. I don't know. It's interesting. I I. Uh, you know, I think everyone's perspective is different, but uh, I think what you're saying is true. I mean, like what you're saying is, is public knowledge. Like you're right, the companies, they're um, a lot of them are downsizing and people are leaving, and um, so it's interesting to say the yep. least. What about uh, you know, we talked earlier about failure. If we had to flip it, Kabir, what is a financial success that you experienced that you're extremely proud of 
that um, you think really uh, exemplifies um, some uh, hard work, intuition, all that good stuff that maybe listeners can learn from? I think I think my writing career, I, my first book, I was in college, I wrote this book, I think on, on education and the future of education. I was really happy with it. And then I shopped it to many, many different publishers. And I probably got 35 rejections. I mean, you name the publisher, they rejected it. And I was really down and out. And um, so I said, let me start over again. And so I wrote another book, my first book, my first published book. Um, and I, it, was, it was on another topic. And uh, I then shopped that around. And I, I got a small independent publisher in California to say yes to it. And they gave me some money to, um, to be able to publish it. And I was so excited that someone would want to um, publish one of my books. Like I was like 22. And I was very excited. And so from there, I got a lot of more confidence in my writing. And this is now four books later that I'm with a sort of a top tier publisher in Grand Central Publishing. And so I guess the lesson there is that if you're really passionate about something, and I'm, I'm this was really passionate about writing, sort of stay at it. And, uh, but also you really got to sell it. I, I, I met so many people and it was sort of networking and, and asking who knows who and, and talking to everyone. You have to really hustle to, to get your, to work seen. And once it happens, um, it's not going to be a, a huge success at once. It was a small, small financial success. I didn't get a lot of money, and then you just build on that. What do you think about self-publishing? I think people who really want to become authors, the likelihood that they're going to get a top-tier publisher, um, you know, there are only so many publishers, right? And there are way more authors who want to write books. So why perhaps you didn't go the self-publishing route, or would you in the future? I could, yeah. The, the thing about self I mean, I'm all for self-publishing. I think the more voices we have out there, freedom of speech, the better. Uh, for me, I um, I was I, I wanted to publish with a publisher just because of the, of the distribution capacity. I'm not really, I should be more into the social media and sort of brand building. I'm not that good at it. I, I prefer the, the writing aspect to it. So I, I like that the publisher can handle at least some aspect of the sales. But in the future, sure, I'm, I'm totally open to, to that aspect of it. In fact, right now I'm I'm having to write a lot of different content uh, to promote the book, um, and this these, this is obviously published in different blogs, different journals. So I I feel that, um, and, but I feel like listen, increasingly people are self-publishing. Some some great um, self-published works are are landing on the New York Times bestseller list, mm-hmm. and just what what happened to the music industry is happening to the to the book industry. I think it's a good change. Well, speaking of the music industry and speaking of success, Kabir, talk about your Grammy win. How how does that happen? First of all, like you have so much going on. You're writing a book, you're working, you're promoting a book. You're, you know, you're 31, by the way. How, tell us, take us back. Like you obviously have this great musical talent um, and like, hello, surprise. I want a, I want a Grammy. Yeah, it's, it's, it's very exciting and I'm still um, in shock from it. Uh, This, this goes back to sort of that mantra of, of um, sort of deferred gratification so I um, was a jazz bass player growing up. I, I toured, I played, um, and while I was in college, I met a man named Arturo O'Farrell. He's a great Latin jazz musician. And uh, a few years ago, we decided to work on an album together. And the album is called The Offense of the Drum, and it has 28 types of percussion and many, many guest artists. There's a hip-hop track, 
with DJ and turntables. And this was, yeah, I think three years ago we went into the album, we went into the studio. And over the course of the last two years, we were, we've been promoting it and we got the Grammy nomination. And this past Sunday, a week ago, um, we were named the best Latin jazz album of the year. And after you win the Grammy, they, they bring you up. John Waters presented the Grammy, which is kind of cool. And so he uh, shook his hand. I got to make a accept, acceptance speech. And then after you're, you're taken backstage and um, and then the grant, there's a Grammy official that's assigned to you. And they're like, okay, this is going to be your person. They're going to escort you through like six different interviews and photo ops. And I saw like Blake Sheldon walking um, backstage and there was a choir. So we were like in the, in the, catacombs of the of the Staples Center in Los Angeles. But overall, again, two years ago, uh, just like this book, I mean, you write, you write, the, you take a long time to do these projects. And then two or three years later, you start to see sort of the, the rewards from it. So now what? You've got the Grammy. What happens afterwards? Like everybody's curious, like after you win an Oscar, after you win an Emmy, <laughs> there's like all these other offers that come your way. Have you been fielding <laughs> numerous uh, offers to work with different people now because of this amazing, amazing uh, <laughs> award? I have. I mean, th they say that you win a pie eating contest and the reward is more pie. So, <laughs> so I've been a lot of musicians have been reaching out to um, for me to work with them. But I think um, I have a great, a fun project planned. Last December, I um, helped bring over 40 people to Cuba uh, with Arturo O'Farrell. And we were there while President Obama um, made his announcement about normalization between Cuba and America. We were actually performing at the U.S. ambassador. We don't have an ambassador. His name is, he's a head of mission. But we were at the residency performing just hours before the announcement. And we were making an album called Cuba, The Conversation Continues, about American musicians and Cuban musicians playing together. And sure enough, we're there while the diplomatic conversation continued. So we're excited that this this album will come out later this year and it should be a, a great sort of symbol of cultural diplomacy of musicians speaking together and ultimately politicians speaking together. So wonderful. Congratulations again. Thank you. How about a financial habit, Kabir? Share uh, with us a uh, maybe a financial habit that you practice daily, perhaps less frequently, but it is something that you do consciously that helps to keep your personal wealth uh, growing and in where it needs to be. I, I use um, American Express, the um, I guess the account management. When you log onto the Amex um, website, there's that pie chart about what you're spending your discretionary income on. Mm -hmm. So my big, like, I, I tend to spend a lot, not, not on, on like physical things, but on experiences. So going out and eating with friends and I, I tend to spend way too much money on like eating out. I don't cook, so I'm always eating out. So I try to look at that. I try to uh, make the pie chart. I look at the discretionary item and I say, Oh, I need to eat it like less expensive places. So I go to like an increasing them. Okay. I'll go to like Hale and Hardy or some some cheaper restaurants, but I'm constantly looking at that pie chart to make sure that my I'm, I'm spending less of my income on uh, on going out to eat and paying <laughs> exorbitant amounts for food. Yeah, so basically, visualization is a habit right. of yours that helps to keep you um, at least within one aspect of your of your budget. You know, keeping that under wraps. I know in living in, in the city, in the big city, it is not a coincidence that so many of my guests who live in New York 
say that eating out is probably their biggest discretionary spend. Yeah, totally, totally. And yeah, visualization is so key to 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 feeling because otherwise, you, you, money just goes away. You don't you don't really know. So all, I mean, Mint.com has a great software, but Amex does a really good job at it. Well, you know, that's it makes me curious to uh, learn what your perspective is on this entire shift, this like, you know, technological shift that's happening with money, where uh, now we barely don't even use dollar bills anymore. Everything is electronic. Everything is either a swipe or a beep or a, you know, we're paying with our phones. I wonder psychologically how that uh, negatively impacts our kind of uh, relationship with money and our value uh, towards money. Well, you know, those uh, Apple got into some problems because you know, they store your credit card, and I think some some kids were, uh, you know, racking up huge fees on their iPads or iPhones, buying songs or games. And so, when you don't have to see the money, or you don't have to see your credit card, you don't um, it it doesn't trigger the, the part of the brain that uh, can be triggered when you use money is the amygdala, the fear center. And so, when you don't see it, it feels like uh, you know, there's not as much like neural activity in that fear center of the brain. So, I think. Apple had to pay a, a I think, a, a fine um, because of this. But, you know, money money will be increasingly mobile, but amazingly, um, 85% of the world's transactions are still in cash. And so it may feel like, you know, here in America that we're sort of at the forefront, but even in, like, developed nations like Germany, credit card penetration is very, very low um, because there's a, a cultural attitude that, you know, in, in Germany, the word for um, – Debt is schuld, which means sin. And even in mm. China, um, <laughs> yeah, so even in China, same same thing. It's very hard to use credit cards. So, yeah, here in America, there's beeps, there's swiping. Oh, boom. Almost everywhere around the world, it's not like that. Can you imagine if we substituted the word debt in our culture for sin? <laughs> wow. Well, that would be a radical change, I think, in uh, <laughs> debt <Yeah>. levels. <laughs> exactly. Okay, Kabir, you've been awesome and lots of fun. And before we wrap, I want to go through some rapid questions. Well, actually, they're fill in the blanks okay. where I start a sentence and you finish it. And the first thing that comes to your mind, don't overthink it. If you won the lottery tomorrow, if I won the lottery tomorrow, say $100 million, the first thing I would do is? Invest it. In what? Probably uh, some real estate. <laughs> if I ever were to travel around the world, I ask taxi drivers, what would you invest in? And from like Mongolia to Singapore, they're always like, I invest in real estate. I think everyone gets that. You try to make your money work for you. Yeah. I wonder if cab drivers in the U.S. would say that, though. <laughs> I should ask, yeah. <laughs> I don't think they would because I think we have a whole like these days, you know, the idea of real estate is, is kind of a shaky mm-hmm. prospect. The one thing that I spend my money on that makes my life easier or better is I I, I put money I put a lot of money in books. I mm-hmm. just read I'm a very vociferous reader and so my Amazon account like is so crazy. <laughs> what are you reading right now? Um, I'm reading a book called The Rational Optimist. It's sort of about this idea of evolutionary economics and uh, about how sort of we exchange to survive. And the next book I'm reading, uh, I, and sorry, I just finished um, Tom Wolfe's The Bonfire of the Vanities, which is yes, uh, classic. Yeah. My biggest guilty pleasure that I spend a lot of money on, and this is probably in addition to your eating out budget, but what's another guilty pleasure that you spend a lot of money on? 
Um, I spend a lot of money on on music as well. So <laughs> I, I stream it, but I end up buying a lot of songs on iTunes. That's how I write. I mean, I can't really write without listening to good music. And it's usually, for me, it's jazz music. Nice. One thing I wish I'd known about money growing up. Um, you know, I wish I knew more about um, the market, stock markets. My my folks weren't really into the markets, and so the, the stock market was sort of a very, I guess, uh, foreign idea for, for what is it. So I wish I knew a little bit more about, like, company fundamentals, what moves a stock uh, earlier in life. I mean, even in high school, it would have been nice to take an economics course, which which I didn't. Were your parents uh, relatively good role models for you when it came to money? Yeah, I think so. They were they were really um, – but they, you know, I grew up in an Indian household, and they really put a premium on education. Mm-hmm. So they would always spend money on if it was like a tutor or an after-school education activity. There were no questions asked, and so that's probably where I got my focus um, on on work and, and sort of education. But where, when it came to something a little more like trivial, clothes, um, I don't know, having fun, so they they would uh, <laughs> hold back on that fun. Yeah, exactly. Oh. Tiger mom, right? Yeah, I, I can relate. In an Iranian household, similar, similar. We had a lot of Indian friends. Let's just put it that way. We all <laughs> shared a lot of similarities. When I donate money, I like to give to blank because? I love to give to charities that have a lot of transparency, like charity water, for instance, when you give them a dollar or they, they'll show you where that money is going to. It's going, they say, 100% to the mission at hand. And, um, and I like, I mean, that's ultimately when you give money to a charity, you want to see impact. You don't want them, you don't want the money going to like staplers and, and office plants. You want to go into the real cause. So any organization that can show me transparency where my money's going to. Fantastic. And, um, guidestar.org is a great site, um, among others that can tell you kind of where the money goes and they cool. rank charities based on that being a huge factor, you know, the transparency. And finally, Kabir, I'm so money because? Mm-hmm. Because I'm having, I got invited to have breakfast with you. Oh, yes, you did. <laughs> <laughs> Kabir and I will be having breakfast shortly uh, this uh, month. And I look forward to meeting you in person. And congratulations on the book. Congratulations on the Grammy. This is just the beginning for you. And I'm, I'm honored that you're on the show. And thank you for adding such value to listeners as they are on their commute to work, from work, at the gym, wherever you are, guys. Thanks so much for tuning in. And thank you, Kabir. Thank you. Really a pleasure. That is a wrap. If you'd like to learn more about Kabir and his book, please visit the website coinbook.com. And you can also follow him on Twitter at HiKabir, H-I-K-A-B-I-R. I love that. I want Hi Farnoosh. That's so cute. We have all this information at somoneypodcast.com. And of course, there you can locate the transcript and comments from this interview and all previous episodes. And as always, I do love hearing from you. I do. It's probably my favorite part of this job. So please submit your questions. What are you waiting for about money, work, life, guests? Go to somoneypodcast.com, click on Ask Farnoosh and ask away. And there's a really good chance 
that I will answer your question this weekend or the following weekend. Now, if you love what you're hearing and you want the podcast to keep going, it's really important that you let the world know what you think of it. And the best way to do that is to go to iTunes and leave a review. It takes a few minutes. It's not very straightforward, but it would mean the world to me and the podcast would really benefit because good reviews get you excellent placement in the podcast store, more organic growth. And so if you've got a chance to do that, please do. And when you do do that, please let me know. Email me, farnoosh at somoneypodcast.com. I'd like to thank you. But also every week I take one reviewer, uh, I announce one reviewer on the show on Saturdays and give that reviewer a free 15-minute money session with me. So hopefully you and I will be connecting soon. Thanks in advance. If you do choose to leave a review, let me know. And uh, that's all. Hope your day, guys, is so money.